Chapter Fourteen of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joelle Peebles. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume Two, Paris in Prison, by Giacomo Casanova, translated by Arthur Machen. Episode Seven, Venice. Chapter Fourteen. I get rich again. My adventure at Dolo. Analysis of a long letter from C. C. Mischievous trick played upon me by P. C. At Vincenza. A tragicomedy at the inn. Necessity, that imperious law and my only excuse, having made me almost the partner of a cheat, there was still the difficulty of finding the three hundred sequins required but I postponed the task of finding them until after I should have made the acquaintance of the dupes of the goddess to whom they addressed their worship. Croce took me to the Pronto Delta Valle, where we found Madame surrounded with foreigners. She was pretty, and as a secretary of the imperial ambassador Count Rosenberg had attached himself to her, not one of the Venetian nobles dared court her. Those who interested me among the satellites gravitating around that star were the Swede, Gillenspetz, a hamburger, the Englishman Mendez, who has already been mentioned, and three or four others to whom Croce called my attention. We dined all together, and after dinner there was a general call for a faro bank, but Croce did not accept. His refusal surprised me, because with three hundred sequins, being a very skillful player, he had enough to try his fortune. He did not, however, allow my suspicions to last long for he took me to his own room and showed me fifty pieces of eight, which were equal to three hundred sequins. When I saw that the professional gambler had not chosen me as his partner with the intention of making a dupe of me, I told him that I would certainly procure the amount, and upon that promise he invited everybody to supper for the following day. We agreed that we would divide the spoils before parting in the evening, and that no one should be allowed to play on trust. I had to procure the amount, but to whom could I apply? I could ask no one but Monsieur de Bragadin. The excellent man had not that sum in his possession, for his purse was generally empty. But he found a user, a species of animal too numerous, unfortunately, for young men, who, upon a note of hand endorsed by him, gave me a thousand ducats at five per cent for one month, the said interest being deducted by anticipation from the capital. It was exactly the amount I required. I went to the supper. Croce held the bank until daylight, and we divided sixteen hundred sequins between us. The game continued the next evening, and Gillen's bets alone lost two thousand sequins. The Jew Mendez lost about one thousand. Sunday was sanctified by rest, but on Monday the bank won four thousand sequins. On Tuesday we all dined together, and the play was resumed but we had scarcely begun when an officer of the Podesta made his appearance and informed Croce that he wanted a little private conversation with him. They left the room together, and after a short absence Croce came back rather crestfallen. He announced that by superior orders he was forbidden to hold a bank at his house. Madame fainted away. The punters hurried out, and I followed their example as soon as I had secured one half of the gold which was on the table. I was glad enough it was not worse. As I left, Croce told me that we would meet again in Venice, 
for he had been ordered to quit Padua within twenty-four hours. I expected it would be so, because he was too well known, but his greatest crime, in the opinion of the Podesta, was that he attracted the players to his own house, whilst the authorities wanted all the lovers of play to lose their money at the opera, where the bankers were mostly noblemen from Venice. I left the city on horseback in the evening and in very, very bad weather, but nothing could have kept me back, because early the next morning I expected a letter from my dear prisoner. I had only travelled six miles from Padua when my horse fell and I found my left leg caught under it. My boots were soft ones, and I feared I had hurt myself. The postillion was ahead of me, but hearing the noise made by the fall, he came up and disengaged me. I was not hurt, but my horse was lame. I immediately took the horse of the postillion to which I was entitled, but the insolent fellow, getting hold of the bit, refused to let me proceed. I tried to make him understand that he was wrong, but far from giving way to my arguments, he persisted in stopping me, and being in a great hurry to continue my journey, I fired one of my pistols in his face, but without touching him. Frightened out of his wits, the man let go, and I galloped off. When I reached the dolo, I went straight to the stables, and I myself saddled a horse, which a postillion, to whom I gave a crown, pointed out to me as being excellent. No one thought of being astonished at my other postillion having remained behind, and we started at full speed. It was then one o'clock in the morning, the storm had broken up the road, and the night was so dark that I could not see anything within a yard ahead of me. The day was breaking when we arrived in Fusina. The boatmen threatened me with a fresh storm, but setting everything at defiance, I took a four-oared boat and reached my dwelling quite safe but shivering with cold and wet to the skin. I had scarcely been in my room for a quarter of an hour when the messenger from Murren presented herself and gave me a letter, telling me that she would call for the answer in two hours. That letter was a journal of seven pages, the faithful translation of which might weary my readers, but here is the substance of it. After the interview with Monsieur de Bragadin, the father of C. C. had gone home, had his wife and daughter to his room, and inquired kindly from the last where she had made my acquaintance. She answered that she had seen me five or six times in her brother's room, and that I had asked her whether she would consent to be my wife, and that she had told me that she was dependent upon her father and mother. The father had then said that she was too young to think of marriage, and besides, I had not yet conquered a position in society. After that decision, he repaired to his son's room and locked the small door inside as well as the one communicating with the apartment of the mother, who was instructed by him to let me believe that she had gone to the country in case I should call on her. Two days afterwards he came to C.C., who was beside her sick mother, and told her that her aunt would take her to a convent, where she was to remain until a husband had been provided for her by her parents. She answered that, being perfectly disposed to submit to his will, she would gladly obey him. Pleased with her ready obedience, he promised to go and see her, and to let her mother visit her likewise, as soon as her health was better. Immediately after that conversation the aunt had called for her, and a gondola had taken them to the convent, where she had been ever since. Her bed and her clothes had been brought to her. She was well pleased with her room and with the nun to whom she had been entrusted, and under whose supervision she was. It was by her that she had been forbidden to receive either letters or visits, or to write to anybody, under penalty of excommunication from the Holy Father, 
of everlasting damnation, and of other similar trifles. Yet the same nun had supplied her with paper, ink, and books, and it was at night that my young friend transgressed the laws of the convent in order to write all these particulars to me. She expressed her conviction respecting the discretion and the faithfulness of the messenger, and she thought that she would remain devoted, because being poor, our sequins were a little fortune for her. She related to me in the most assuring manner that the handsomeness of all the nuns in the convent loved her to distraction, gave her a French lesson twice a day, and had amicably forbidden her to become acquainted with the other boarders. That nun was only twenty-two years of age. She was beautiful, rich, and generous. All the other nuns showed her great respect. When we are alone, wrote my friend, she kisses me so tenderly that you would be jealous if she were not a woman. As to our project of running away, she did not think it would be very difficult to carry it into execution, but that it would be better to wait until she knew the locality better. She told me to remain faithful and constant, and asked me to send her my portrait hidden in a ring by a secret spring known only to us. She added that I might send it to her by her mother, who had recovered her usual health, and was in the habit of attending early mass at her parish church every day by herself. She assured me that the excellent woman would be delighted to see me and to do anything I might ask her. At all events, she concluded, I hope to find myself in a few months in a position which will scandalize the convent if they are obstinately bent upon keeping me here. I was just finishing my answer when Laura, the messenger, returned for it. After I had paid the sequin I had promised her, I gave her a parcel containing sealing wax, paper, pens, and a tinder box which she promised to deliver to C.C. C. My darling had told her that I was her cousin, and Laura feigned to believe it. Not knowing what to do in Venice, and believing that I ought for the sake of my honor to show myself in Padua, or else people might suppose that I had received the same order as Croce, I hurried my breakfast and procured a boletta from the booking office for Rome because I foresaw that the firing of my pistol and the lame horse might not have improved the temper of the postmasters, but by showing them what is called in Italy a boletta, I knew that they could not refuse to supply me with horses whenever they had any in their stables. As far as the pistol shot was concerned, I had no fear, for I had purposely missed the insolent postillion, and even if I had killed him on the spot it would not have been of much importance." In Fusina I took a two-wheeled chaise, for I was so tired that I could not have performed the journey on horseback, and I reached the dolo, where I was recognized, and horses were refused me. I made a good deal of noise, and the postmaster, coming out, threatened to have me arrested if I did not pay him for his dead horse. I answered that if the horse were dead I would account for it to the postmaster in Padua, but what I wanted was fresh horses without delay and I showed him the dread boletta, the sight of which made him lower his tone, but he told me that, even if he supplied me with horses, I had treated the postillion so badly that not one of his men would drive me. If that is the case, I answered, you shall accompany me yourself. The fellow laughed in my face, turned his back upon me, and went away. I took two witnesses, and I called with them at the office of a public notary, who drew up a properly worded document by which I gave notice to the postmaster that I should expect an indemnity of ten sequins for each hour of delay until I had horses supplied to me. 
As soon as he had been made acquainted with the contents of this, he gave orders to bring out two restive horses. I saw at once that his intention was to have me upset along the road, and perhaps thrown into the river, but I calmly told the postillion that at the very moment my chaise was upset I would blow his brains out with a pistol shot. This threat frightened the man. He took his horses back to the stables and declared to his master that he would not drive me. At that very moment a courier arrived who called for six carriage horses and two saddle ones. I warned the postmaster that no one should leave the place before me and that if he opposed my will there would be a sanguinary contest. In order to prove that I was in earnest I took out my pistols. The fellow began to swear, but everyone saying that he was in the wrong, he disappeared. Five minutes afterwards, whom should I see, arriving in a beautiful Berlin drawn by six horses, but Croce with his wife, a lady's maid, and two lackeys in grand livery. He alighted, we embraced one another, and I told him, assuming an air of sadness, that he could not leave before me. I explained how the case stood. He said I was right, scolded loudly as if he had been a great lord, and made everybody tremble. The postmaster had disappeared. His wife came, and ordered the postillions to attend to my wants. During that time Croce said to me that I was quite right in going back to Padua, where the public rumor had spread the report of my having left the city in consequence of an order from the police. He informed me that the Podesta had likewise expelled M. de Gondoin, a colonel in the service of the Duke of Modena, because he held a faro bank at his house. I promised him to pay him a visit in Venice in the ensuing week. Croce, who had dropped from the sky to assist me in a moment of great distress, had won ten thousand sequins in four evenings. I had received five thousand for my share, and lost no time in paying my debts and in redeeming all the articles which I had been compelled to pledge. That scamp brought me back the smiles of fortune, and from that moment I got rid of the ill luck which had seemed to fasten on me. I reached Padua in safety, and the postillion, who very likely out of fear had driven me in good style, was well pleased with my liberality. It was the best way of making peace with the tribe. My arrival caused great joy to my three friends, whom my sudden departure had alarmed, with the exception of M. de Bragadin, in whose hands I had placed my cash-box the day before. His two friends had given credence to the general report, stating that the Podesta had ordered me to leave Padua. They forgot that I was a citizen of Venice, and that the Podesta could not pass such a sentence upon me without exposing himself to legal proceedings. I was tired, but instead of going to bed I dressed myself in my best attire in order to go to the opera without a mask. I told my friends that it was necessary for me to show myself so as to give the lie to all that had been reported about me by slandering tongues. De La Haye said to me, I shall be delighted if all those reports are false, but you have no one to blame but yourself, for your hurried departure gave sufficient cause for all sorts of surmises. And for slander? That may be, but people want to know everything, and they invent when they cannot guess the truth and evil-minded fools lose no time in repeating those inventions everywhere. But there can be no doubt that you wanted to kill the postillion. Is that a calumny likewise? The greatest of all. Do you think that a good shot can miss a man when he is firing in his very face, unless he does it purposely? 
It seems difficult, but at all events it is certain that the horse is dead and you must pay for it. No, sir, not even if the horse belonged to you, for the postillion preceded me. You know a great many things. Do you happen to know the posting regulations? Besides, I was in a great hurry because I had promised a pretty woman to breakfast with her, and such engagements, as you are well aware, cannot be broken. Master de la Haye looked angry at the rather caustic irony with which I had sprinkled the dialogue, but he was still more vexed when, taking some gold out of my pocket, I returned to him the sum he had lent me in Vienna. A man never argues well except when his purse is well filled. Then his spirits are pitched in a high key, unless he should happen to be stupefied by some passion raging in his soul. Monsieur de Bragadin thought I was quite right to show myself at the opera without a mask. The moment I made my appearance in the pit, everybody seemed quite astonished, and I was overwhelmed with compliments, sincere or not. After the first ballet, I went to the card room, and in four deals I won five hundred sequins. Starving and almost dead for want of sleep, I returned to my friends to boast of my victory. My friend Bavois was there, and he seized the opportunity to borrow from me fifty sequins, which he never returned. True, I never asked him for them. My thoughts being constantly absorbed in my dear C.C., I spent the whole of the next day in having my likeness painted in miniature by a skillful Piedmontese, who had come for the fair of Padua, and who in after times made a great deal of money in Venice. When he had completed my portrait, he painted for me a beautiful St. Catherine of the same size, and a clever Venetian jeweler made the ring, the bezel of which showed only the sainted virgin, but a blue spot, hardly visible on the white enamel which surrounded it, corresponded with the secret spring which brought out my portrait, and the change was obtained by pressing on the blue spot with the point of a pin. On the following Friday, as we were rising from the dinner-table, a letter was handed to me. It was with great surprise that I recognized the writing of P.C. He asked me to pay him a visit at the Star Hotel, where he would give me some interesting information. Thinking that he might have something to say concerning his sister, I went to him at once. I found him with Madame C., and after congratulating him upon his release from prison, I asked him for the news he had to communicate. I am certain, he said, that my sister is in a convent, and I shall be able to tell you the name of it when I return to Venice. You will oblige me, I answered, pretending not to know anything. But his news had only been a pretext to make me come to him, and his eagerness to communicate it had a very different object in view than the gratification of my curiosity. I have sold, he said to me, my privileged contract for three years for a sum of fifteen thousand florins, and the man with whom I have made the bargain took me out of prison by giving security for me, and advanced me six thousand florins in four letters of exchange. He showed me the letters of exchange, endorsed by a name which I did not know, but which he said was a very good one, and he continued, I intend to buy six thousand florins worth of silk goods from the looms of Vicenza, and to give in payment to the merchants these letters of exchange. I am certain of selling those goods rapidly with a profit of ten per cent. Come with us to Vicenza. I will give you some of my goods to the amount of two hundred sequins, and thus you will find yourself covered for the guarantee which you have been kind enough to give to the jeweler for the ring. We shall complete the transaction within twenty-four hours. I did not feel much 
inclination for the trip, but I allowed myself to be blinded by the wish to cover the amount which I had guaranteed, and which I had no doubt I would be called upon to pay some day or other. If I do not go with him, I said to myself, he will sell the goods at a loss of twenty-five per cent, and I shall get nothing. I promised to accompany him. He showed me several letters of recommendation for the best houses in Vicenza, and our departure was fixed for early the next morning. I was at the Star Hotel by daybreak. A carriage and four was ready. The hotel keeper came up with his bill, and P.C. begged me to pay it. The bill amounted to five sequins, four of which had been advanced in cash by the landlord to pay the driver who had brought them from Fusina. I saw that it was a put-up thing, yet I paid with pretty good grace, for I guessed that the scoundrel had left Venice without a penny. We reached Vicenza in three hours, and we put up at the Capello, where P.C. ordered a good dinner before leaving me with the lady to call upon the manufacturers. When the beauty found herself alone with me, she began by addressing friendly reproaches to me. "'I have loved you,' she said, "'for eighteen years.' The first time that I saw you we were in Padua, and we were then only nine years old. I certainly had no recollection of it. She was the daughter of the antiquarian friend of Monsieur Grimani, who had placed me as a boarder with the accursed Sclavonian woman. I could not help smiling, for I recollected that her mother had loved me. Shop-boys soon began to make their appearance, bringing pieces of goods, and the face of Madame C. brightened up. In less than two hours the room was filled with them, and P.C. came back with two merchants, whom he had invited to dinner. Madame allured them by her pretty manners. We dined, and exquisite wines were drunk in profusion. In the afternoon fresh goods were brought in. P.C. made a list of them with the prices, but he wanted more, and the merchants promised to send them the next day, although it was Sunday. Towards the evening several counts arrived, for in Vicenza every nobleman is a count. P.C. had left his letters of recommendation at their houses. We had a Count Velo, a Count Sesso, a Count Trento, all very amiable companions. They invited us to accompany them to the casino, where Madame C. shone by her charms and her coquettish manners. After we had spent two hours in that place, P.C. invited all his new friends to supper, and it was a scene of gaiety and profusion. The whole affair annoyed me greatly, and therefore I was not amiable. The consequence was that no one spoke to me. I rose from my seat and went to bed, leaving the joyous company still round the festive board. In the morning I came downstairs, had my breakfast, and looked about me. The room was so full of goods that I did not see how P.C. could possibly pay for all with his six thousand florins. He told me, however, that his business would be completed on the morrow, and that we were invited to a ball where all the nobility would be present. The merchants with whom he had dealt came to dine with us, and the dinner was remarkable for its extreme profusion. We went to the ball, but I soon got very weary of it, for everybody was speaking to Madame C. and to P. C., who never uttered a word with any meaning, but whenever I opened my lips people would pretend not to hear me. I invited a lady to dance a minuet. She accepted, but she looked constantly to the right or to the left, and seemed to consider me as a mere dancing machine. A quadrille was formed, but the thing was contrived in such a manner as to leave me out of it, and the very lady who had refused me as a partner danced with another gentleman. 
Had I been in good spirits, I should certainly have resented such conduct, but I preferred to leave the ballroom. I went to bed, unable to understand why the nobility of Vicenza treated me in such a way. Perhaps they neglected me because I was not named in the letters of introduction given to P.C., but I thought that they might have known the laws of common politeness. I bore the evil patiently, however, as we were to leave the city the next day. On Monday, the worthy pair being tired, they slept until noon, and after dinner P.C. went out to pay for the goods. We were to go away early on the Tuesday, and I instinctively longed for that moment. The counts whom P.C. had invited were delighted with his mistress, and they came to supper, but I avoided meeting them. On the Tuesday morning I was duly informed that breakfast was ready, but as I did not answer the summons quickly enough, the servant came up again and told me that my wife requested me to make haste. Scarcely had the word wife escaped his lips than I visited the cheek of the poor fellow with a tremendous smack, and in my rage kicked him downstairs, the bottom of which he reached in four springs, to the imminent risk of his neck. Maddened with rage, I entered the breakfast-room, and addressing myself to P.C., I asked him who was the scoundrel who had announced me in the hotel as the husband of Madame C. He answered that he did not know, but at the same moment the landlord came into the room with a big knife in his hand and asked me why I had kicked his servant down the stairs. I quickly drew a pistol, and threatening him with it, I demanded imperatively from him the name of the person who had represented me as the husband of that woman. Captain P.C., answered the landlord, gave the names, profession, etc., of your party. At this I seized the impudent villain by the throat, and pinning him against the wall with a strong hand, I would have broken his head with the butt of my pistol if the landlord had not prevented me. Madame had pretended to swoon, for those women can always command tears or fainting fits, and the cowardly P.C. kept on saying, It is not true, it is not true. The landlord ran out to get the hotel register, and he angrily thrust it under the nose of the coward, daring him to deny his having dictated Captain P.C. with Monsieur and Madame Casanova. The scoundrel answered that his words had certainly not been heard rightly, and the incensed landlord slapped the book in his face with such force that he sent him rolling, almost stunned, against the wall. When I saw that the wretched poltroon was receiving such degrading treatment without remembering that he had a sword hanging by his side, I left the room and asked the landlord to order me a carriage to take me to Padua. Beside myself with rage, blushing for very shame, seeing but too late the fault I had committed by accepting the society of a scoundrel, I went up to my room and hurriedly packed my carpet-bag. I was just going out when Madame C. presented herself before me. Be gone, madame, I said to her, or in my rage I might forget the respect due to your sex. She threw herself, crying bitterly, on a chair, entreated me to forgive her, assuring me that she was innocent, and that she was not present when the knave had given the names. The landlady, coming in at that moment, vouched for the truth of her assertion. My anger began to abate, and as I passed near the window I saw the carriage I had ordered waiting for me with a pair of good horses. I called for the landlord in order to pay whatever my share of the expense might come to, but he told me that as I had ordered nothing myself I had nothing to pay. Just at that juncture Count Velo came in. I dare say, Count, I said, that you believe this woman to be my wife. That is a fact known to everybody in the city. Damnation! 
and you have believed such a thing, knowing that I occupy this room alone, and seeing me leave the ballroom and the supper-table yesterday alone, leaving her with you all. Some husbands are blessed with such easy dispositions. I do not think I look like one of that species, and you are not a judge of men of honor. Let us go out, and I undertake to prove it to you. The Count rushed down the stairs and out of the hotel. The miserable sea was choking, and I could not help pitying her, for a woman has in her tears a weapon which, through my life, I have never known to resist. I considered that if I left the hotel without paying anything, people might laugh at my anger and suppose that I had a share in the swindle. I requested the landlord to bring me the account, intending to pay half of it. He went for it, but another scene awaited me. Madame C., bathed in tears, fell on her knees, and told me that if I abandoned her she was lost, for she had no money and nothing to leave as security for her hotel bill. What, madam, have you not letters of exchange to the amount of six thousand florins, or the goods bought with them? The goods are no longer here. They have all been taken away, because the letters of exchange, which you saw, and which we considered as good as cash, only made the merchants laugh. They have sent for everything. Oh, who could have supposed it? The scoundrel! He knew it well enough, and that is why he was so anxious to bring me here. Well, it is right that I should pay the penalty of my own folly. The bill brought by the landlord amounted to forty sequins, a very high figure for three days, but a large portion of that sum was cash advanced by the landlord. I immediately felt that my honor demanded that I should pay the bill in full, and I paid without any hesitation, taking care to get a receipt given in the presence of two witnesses. I then made a present of two sequins to the nephew of the landlord to console him for the thrashing he had received, and I refused the same sum to the wretched C, who had sent the landlady to beg it for her. Thus ended that unpleasant adventure which taught me a lesson, and a lesson which I ought not to have required. Two or three weeks later I heard that Count Trento had given those two miserable beings some money to enable them to leave the city. As far as I was concerned, I would not have anything to do with them. A month afterwards, P.C. was again arrested for debt, the man who had been security for him having become a bankrupt. He had the audacity to write a long letter to me, entreating me to go and see him, but I did not answer him. I was quite as inflexible towards Madame C., whom I always refused to see. She was reduced to great poverty. I returned to Padua, where I stopped only long enough to take my ring and to dine with Monsieur de Bragadin, who went back to Venice a few days afterwards. The messenger from the convent brought me a letter very early in the morning. I devoured its contents. It was very loving, but gave no news. In my answer I gave my dear C. C. the particulars of the infamous trick played upon me by her villainous brother, and mentioned the ring, with the secret of which I had acquainted her. According to the information I had received from C. C., I placed myself one morning so as to see her mother enter the church, into which I followed her. Kneeling close to her, I told her that I wished to speak with her, and she followed me to the cloister. I began by speaking a few consoling words, then I told her that I would remain faithful to her daughter, and I asked her whether she visited her. I intend, she said, to go and kiss my dear child next Sunday, and I shall, of course, speak of you with her, for I know well enough that she will be delighted to have news of you, but to my great regret I am not at liberty to tell you where she is. 
I do not wish you to tell me, my good mother, but allow me to send her this ring by you. It is the picture of her patroness, and I wish you to entreat her to wear it always on her finger. Tell her to look at the image during her daily prayers, for without that protection she can never become my wife. Tell her that, on my side, I address every day a credo to St. James. Delighted with the piety of my feelings and with the prospect of recommending this new devotion to her daughter, the good woman promised to fulfill my commission. I left her, but not before I had placed in her hand ten sequins which I begged her to force upon her daughter's acceptance to supply herself with the trifles she might require. She accepted, but at the same time she assured me that her father had taken care to provide her with all necessaries. The letter which I received from C. C. on the following Wednesday was the expression of the most tender affection and the most lively gratitude. She said that the moment she was alone nothing could be more rapid than the point of the pin which made St. Catherine cut a somersault, and presented to her eager eyes the beloved features of the being who was the whole world to her. I am constantly kissing you, she added, even when some of the nuns are looking at me, for whenever they come near me I have only to let the top part of the ring fall back, and my dear patroness takes care to conceal everything. All the nuns are highly pleased with my devotion, and with the confidence I have in the protection of my blessed patroness, whom they think very much like me in the face. It was nothing but a beautiful face created by the fancy of the painter, but my dear little wife was so lovely that beauty was sure to be like her. She said likewise that the nun who taught her French had offered her fifty sequins for the ring on account of the likeness between her and the portrait of the saint, but not out of veneration for her patroness, whom she turned into ridicule as she read her life. She thanked me for the ten sequins I had sent her, because her mother having given them to her in the presence of several of the sisters, she was thus enabled to spend a little money without raising the suspicions of those curious and inquisitive nuns. She liked to offer trifling presents to the other boarders, and the money allowed her to gratify that innocent taste. My mother, added she, praised your piety very highly. She is delighted with your feelings of devotion. Never mention again, I beg, the name of my unworthy brother. For five or six weeks her letters were full of the blessed St. Catherine, who caused her to tremble with fear every time she found herself compelled to trust the ring to the mystic curiosity of the elderly nuns, who, in order to see the likeness better through their spectacles, brought it close to their eyes and rubbed the enamel. I am in constant fear, C.C. wrote, of their pressing the invisible blue spot by chance. What would become of me if my patroness, jumping up, discovered to their eyes a face, very divine, it is true, but which is not at all like that of a saint? Tell me, what could I do in such a case? One month after the second arrest of P.C., the jeweler, who had taken my security for the ring, called on me for payment of the bill. I made an arrangement with him, and on condition of my giving him twenty sequins and leaving him every right over the debtor, he exonerated me. From his prison the impudent P.C. harassed me with his cowardly entreaties for alms and assistance. Croce was in Venice and engrossed a great share of the general attention. He kept a fine house, an excellent table, and a faro-bank with which he emptied the pockets of his dupes. Foreseeing what would happen sooner or later, I had abstained from visiting him at his house, but we were friendly whenever we met. His wife having been delivered of a boy, Croce asked me to stand as godfather, 
a favour which I thought I could grant, but after the ceremony and the supper which was the consequence of it, I never entered the house of my former partner, and I acted rightly. I wish I had always been as prudent in my conduct. End of chapter 14 Recording by Joelle Peebles